You are listening to The Coach's Corner on the Pro 10 Radio Network, a production of Pro 10 Global Sports. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coach's Corner presented by Pro 10 Global Sports and Pro 10 International. Today is Wednesday, May 21st. I am your host, Alex Ramirez. With me today is ATP WTA journalist, Pete Zebron. Pete, how are you? Doing well, Alex. Good afternoon and uh, wonderful to be back on the show. Thank you. Absolutely, yes. Uh, we want to remind everybody that you can call the show at area code 347-637-1197. You can also reach us on Twitter at Pro 10 Radio. And please check out ProTenRadio.com for all the podcasts and future show information. I want to take this time to thank all of our partners, the Bob Magnet, SportsMouse, SportsMouse.net, the Tennis Congress, and Cruise Control Gear. We started a campaign also to support the orphans at the Alora Academy in Africa that serve the less fortunate children across the slums of Kisumu City and Western Kenya. Please check the ProTenRadio.com website and click on the Donate button there on the front page. If you want to know more about the many products and services featured here on the show, tune in on Friday, May 30th at 9 a.m. Pacific. We're going to have representatives from the different companies telling us about their products and services. Our goal here at Pro 10 Radio Network is to support the tennis industry and the many people out there working to make your tennis experience a much better one. Pro 10 Radio is a nonprofit organization. We don't charge anybody for their commercials on the show. We only ask for a donation of any kind, and all donations help pay for the expenses here at the network, and the majority of the donations help support the Pro 10 Foundation and Scholarship Fund. We'll be doing a show in the near future regarding the, the foundation and our mission and how the Pro 10 uh, International and Pro 10 Global Sports support the mission. Uh, Pete, we have a very, very special guest with us this afternoon. He uh, was a Stanford men's tennis coach for 38 years from 1966 to 2004. He's a wing, winningest coach in men's tennis history at, at Stanford with 776 wins and 148 losses. He's won 17 NCAA tennis championships. He coached 50 All-Americans, was a college coach of 13 different Grand Slam champions, singles, doubles, and mixed, uh, was a coach of eight Olympians. He has nine players that reached the uh, top 15 on the ATP singles rankings, 14 of those reached the top 10 in doubles. He currently is the director of tennis at the John H. L. Uh, L. Hines, uh, John L. Hines, and uh, for the past nine years. Coach Dick Gould, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be with you guys, gentlemen. How are you? We're doing well, thank you. Uh, Coach, we're going to start off uh, kind of going back in the past a little bit. And can you tell us a little bit about uh, your, your uh, tennis when you were coming up as a young boy? A little bit different in those days. Uh, my dad was a farmer. I grew up on a farm, and tennis was the last thing in my mind. Uh, <clears throat> I wanted to play little league and, and things like that, and, and you never really even thought about tennis until you're about 13 years old, maybe maybe 11 years old. Uh, no red ball or anything of that sort at the time. Right. Uh, my folks decided I wanted that they wanted me to play, learn to play tennis, and although they never played, they insisted that. I take a lesson uh, on my way to my swimming lesson. There was a, there was a court and a very uh, interesting teacher there. Uh, I didn't want to do it, and they said, well, if you don't do it, you can't ride your horse all summer. So uh, that made me reluctantly uh, attend this first lesson. The coach was a guy named Harold Chafee, a very, uh, very, very wonderful professional. Everything he did as he taught, he made extremely exciting. Uh, it was all correlated to another sport you stepped in in those days to the hit like rocky marciano stepped into the into the punch you watched the ball like ralph kiner watched uh watched the pitch so all of a sudden it kind of made my thinking of tennis uh turn around a little bit and and every ball i hit during that one lesson was just a thrill i hit it on the strings it felt good it was a good sound uh he he made it very rewarding by his voice uh, and I couldn't wait to get home and on a gravel driveway pound the ball against the wooden garage door. Uh, I think I wore it out. I instantly took two tennis, and 
And that was about 11 years old. Uh, we were about an hour outside of the metropolis of L.A., and uh, so it was a little hard to get to tournaments. Uh, I did have a teacher in junior high school who who was interested in tennis and, and would take some of the guys on the junior high school team to some tournaments during the school year. So as a junior, I was exposed to tournament tennis in Southern California, uh, a little later than most of the young people playing at the, in those days, and, and uh, would travel only during the school year to play in tournaments in Santa Monica and Altadena and so on in Southern Cal, uh, because in the summer, of course, I was working on the ranch. Uh, this continued for a number of years, and finally, by my last year in the juniors, I played enough events to attain a ranking of number 18 in Southern California. I, I was very, very proud of that. I still am proud of that, because I never did play all year. Uh, and then I came to Stanford, tried out for the team, and made a, in those days, freshmen could not play in the varsity. We had about a 12-person freshman team. I played about five or six in that team, but it was the first time that I was able to play tennis all year. So and have good competition throughout. So I was a pretty good athlete. I, I relished in that. And by the time I started my sophomore year on the varsity, I was number seven on the team and and got up to be number six the next year. And my final year, I played number three. And I, I that was and on a par with just about every college player in the in the country at that time. Maybe a little bit behind them, but not much. So it was a pretty rapid climb for me and and uh, just a wonderful experience. That's wow, that's that's. Uh... I, we appreciate that that insight, Coach. Thank you very much. And after after graduating from Ventura High School, you uh, you attended Stanford. You won three varsity letters in tennis, won the tennis team's leadership award. You graduated from Stanford uh, in, with a bachelor's in '59 and a master's in 1960. And if you could just talk about your time at Stanford, both as a student and as and as an athlete, please. Well, I, I had I had grandparents attend Stanford. Both my parents attended Stanford, and and just after me, both my brother and my sister, and then a couple of my kids beyond that. And now a couple of grandkids. One will be entering next year. So, it's a long legacy of Stanford uh, in my family, and it was the only place I really uh, thought to apply, apply to. Uh, and of course, I did want to continue my tennis, and I did have a chance to play here. Stanford in those days, uh, actually. From the time of uh, post-World War II until the time I was there, it was always a, and even when I was there, was a, a, a top 10 team. I don't think Stanford was ever out of the top team in the top 10 in the country, but it was a little bit different in those days. The two powerhouses were USC and UCLA, and, and no one else even close to them except on occasion Trinity University in Texas would come up with a great team. I remember especially Frank Froling, uh, uh, Butch Buckles, and some of the players they had in the early days, uh, some of those days along when SC and UCLA had good teams. But they never played in the NCAA championships because they always went to Wimbledon, whereas SC and UCLA would play the NCAA championships and then tra travel overnight and play in Wimbledon the next day with no uh, prior uh, warm-up tournaments on grass. Uh, so it was really a two-team deal with especially uh, occasionally uh, Trinity and being in the mix. But other than that, there was a tremendous drop in talent throughout the United States in college tennis. And, and we were probably around five or six or seven most years. I think one of my years at Stanford, we were as high as two. That happened to be a year I redshirted. Uh, I correct something right away. I never did graduate from Stanford. I was I redshirted one year, which means I would be at Stanford for my fifth year. And so I had a year of eligibility remaining provided in those days you could not play if you had graduated your fifth year. Uh, so I could not graduate, uh, but a, a dean of students here took enough interest in me, found a way that I could get admitted to graduate school at Stanford and, and continue my major in education and get my teaching credential without actually graduating. So my class is 59, but I got my master's in 60 and did everything I would to complete my undergraduate requirements except receive the formal degree. So we'll get we'll get that straight right away. Uh, the, ironically, the year we we the year we finished second in the country, uh, that was the year I redshirted. Uh, we did have a great team headed by Jack Frost, uh, Davis Cup player. Jackie Douglas was a great all-round athlete, football All-American and tennis player at Stanford, and Davis Cupper as well. Uh, but I redshirted that year, and and uh, uh, SC and UCLA weren't eligible that year because of NCAA infractions, so it wasn't quite as tough a field in the national championship. Uh, but but I, I really enjoyed my participation, being able to come out to practice every day for a couple of hours and have 
great players to play with, a lot of them, and, and it really gave me a chance to develop my game. I had a great coach, Bob Ranker, who I really learned a lot from, as well as from Harold Chafee and Arnold Salm, a high school coach who played at USC in the younger days. So I had the good fortune of having three very outstanding coaches growing up and, and uh, through my college days, and this really had an influence on me and my desire to stay in teaching. Nice. No, I, I always like and appreciate hearing uh, hearing our guests talk about uh, what you know who who made an impact, who made an influence, especially early on. And um, coach, parlaying that into uh, the beginning of your coaching career, where you started at Mountain View High School in Mountain View, California. Not only were you tennis coach, but also assistant football coach from 1960 to 64. Just wondering if anything uh, from being an assistant football coach spilled over into uh, the way you conducted uh, being a tennis coach uh, at Stanford going forward. Well, you learn from any teaching experience, and, and especially if it's an, af- if an af- athletic experience, that, that does help you. Uh, in those days, everyone who taught, uh, all the coaches in the schools in those days were also full-time teachers. So we had probably maybe, uh, 15 different football coaches for the varsity, the junior varsity, the B team, so to speak, uh, the junior B team, and so on. I was the junior B, uh, junior B coach, and it was a fascinating experience for me. I did not, I played a little bit of football in high school, but not very not very much, only for a year. And I preferred to teach uh, to coach. I, I wanted to double up and coach basketball. But there was not a position open, so the assignment they gave me was uh, coaching football along with my my duties as a full-time teacher, and I found that really, really helpful, a different kind of sport in terms of the teamness of it, uh, a fascinating experience for me. I absolutely loved it, and I had a great staff, a very helpful staff of associate coaches who really helped me along the way and, and helped me in my coaching philosophy. That is great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Coach, can you share with us how your position as head coach of staff came about, and how was that selection process? Uh, well, my coach retired. He he had been here since pretty much the end of World War II on. I think he had 16 or 17 years at Stanford. Uh, uh, a very knowledgeable coach. I, I I learned a ton from him. Uh, we all enjoyed playing for him, and it was a different kind of world those days. You, you never took a basket of balls out to practice and worked in your serve. You'd come out with a dozen a box of a dozen balls, and and you'd take a couple and go play or hit or whatever. And then he'd come by your court and offer verbal suggestions. But uh, that was okay. We still learned a lot, and we we did a lot of it on our own. But he helped us a great deal. Um, I I really. The more I did this, the more I felt that, hey, you know, this this is a situation here at Stanford, whereas we really hadn't achieved much. I felt that in the area we were geographically, uh, the kind of community socioeconomically that we were located in, there was a tremendous potential for support, uh, a great interest in the game. Uh, just all these stars were aligned where I felt we really could win a national championship at Stanford, and, and this became my goal. And as I was a student athlete, I was thinking, you know, I want to be, I want to be, uh, uh, be a teacher. I want to be a coach. And then my a job opened up a brand new junior college, Foothill College, and I went there. I uh, left left Mountain View High School to go to Foothill. Taught there four years. We won a couple of state championships. I, I really enjoyed that. I'd probably still be at Foothill. I love I love working at the community college. We were investigating. Uh, uh, I'd gone and had gotten permission from the dean of instruction in 1964, I think it was, to or 65 to start up a uh, a program for training, a, a tennis management for training uh, for training pros, for training uh, coaches. And yet, uh, when the Stanford job, when my coach retired, uh, those plans went went down and went by the wayside, and we never got around to doing that. But uh, my coach at Stanford. Retired and and I had worked in the summer camps for our athletic director, heading up the tennis program, and so I knew him fairly well. And I just camped on his doorstep, very frankly, until he just had to give me the job. I gave him no choice, so <laughs> they 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 had to hire me. That, that took a, it was a chance on their part. It was it took a chance on their part because you know there was no pro tour in those days. There was a there was a circuit whereby there was a circuit and there was some money under the table and some players played the circuit, but there really wasn't any money. So in many ways, the word tennis bum has, had some uh, 
had some meaning. You you traveled from place to place. You kind of got your meals and maybe some housing. And the real pro tour is Jack Kramer playing Poncho Gonzalez or Poncho Segura and a one-on-one thing and and barnstorming throughout high school gyms and maybe a few bigger arenas uh, throughout the year. And that was pro tennis in those days. So that was really not an option uh, uh, for me. Uh, I wasn't that good. Uh, although I did have the pleasure while I was a teaching pro and working at Foothill College to play in exhibitions uh, 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 on wood with Poncho Gonzalez and Poncho Segura. And believe me, it was a lot easier returning Poncho Segura's serve than it was Poncho Gonzalez on wood. <laughs> and Rod Laver, Rod Laver was another guy that we played major exhibitions with. So I was able to continue to, to play quite a bit while I was working as a club pro and, and teaching at the junior college before I went to Stanford. That's, that's uh, wonderful. I appreciate that insight, Coach. And uh, you mentioned, you know, when you were at Stanford, recognizing the opportunity, the fan base, the socioeconomic uh, status of, of that part of the country and whatnot. But when you took over Stanford, was wondering what the team looked like in terms of talent. And uh, did you have to rebuild at that point in time, or, or did you have a, a good group of players to uh, to compete with right out of the gate? Well, we had we had some pretty good players uh, to start with. I. I, we certainly weren't good enough to win a national championship or contend. I think we finished my first year maybe, uh, I think we finished something like uh, 16th in the country, the first year Stanford had ever been out of the top 10 since World War II. In those days, you sent four players. To, anyone could enter the national championships. You sent four players or up to four players, and every round they every round they won in singles, you got a point for your team. You could send two doubles teams, and every round they won, you, you got a point for your team. And whoever ended up with the most wins, uh, and a single elimination draw was the national champion, and uh, uh, so we 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 were not that good. I think my third, second year we finished 32nd in the country. I didn't didn't even know that many teams played tennis, so <laughs> I was off to a pretty inauspicious start. But I, I really saw that this was something that could be done, and and I really got more and more confident of it as I went along and confident in what I can do as well. I think the thing that really helped us most of all, because I was not a name a name player known to the players throughout the country. I didn't play the national circuit because I was working and I didn't play internationally. So I think the thing that really helped us was that I was able to talk the USTA into hosting the National Junior Training Camp for Davis Cup, uh, uh, Junior Davis Cup team here at Stanford, which we hosted, I think it was 68, 69, and 70, or maybe 69, 70, 71. In essence, this, the USTA gave scholarships to the top um, 30 juniors or so in the country to come to a training center for two weeks to train and then to have a chance to be selected for the national team, which meant that, that, meant that the team members were sponsored for all their expenses throughout the summer and also to junior Wimbledon, junior French, and so on. It was a different selection system in those days. And uh, and so I was the host of this camp, and we really, really did a good job to to make it special. We had American flags on every net pole, vertical net uh, fence post. We had uh, John Philip Sousa playing every morning. We went out in the community. We brought the community into Stanford. Uh, we had, it, it was really a great experience here for the kids, and, and we really worked hard to make it such. So I got to know them. And in those days, everyone played in their age group, and everybody played, uh, uh, and everyone came to the camp. No one, no one uh, passed it up. Uh, Connors, uh, uh, Mayer, uh, Dickie Stockton, Bob McKinley, everybody was here, and Solomon, just right on down the line. So I got to know these guys. They got to know me a little bit, and this, and and enjoyed their experience at Stanford. From those two weeks at Stanford, they went to the California State Championships in San Jose. It's only a 20-minute drive away, and then from there they went 30 minutes in the other direction from Stanford to the National Hardcore Championship, which was played in Burlingame. And everybody played in these tournaments. There wasn't a top junior, any of the top juniors who missed it. So they were in the area for four weeks at a really great time of year. So this really got me started, and and. Uh, at first, we didn't recruit. We just missed on some great recruits, uh, and but we we couldn't quite get them to commit to come here to start this program. But we're building a bigger base all the way along, and the recruiting stories uh, just misses were are are legends. Really, they really that's a whole other broadcast. But but we were getting stronger all the time. And our first our first uh, Stanley Passerell, the brother of Charlie Passerell, who was a star at UCLA and and went on to become. Uh, just a great name in tennis. Uh, Stanley was the first big name I got to come to Stanford. He was followed by Paul Gherkin, 
out of uh, Connecticut. But Paul was here in a year for a year and didn't see any players coming in behind him, so he transferred to Trinity, and along with Stockton, McKinley, and Gottfried, led them to a national championship in '72. On the other hand, just after he had said he was going to transfer, then Roscoe Tanner decided to come here. And he was followed by Sandy Mayer the next year. So all of a sudden, we were on our way. And by the time Stockton, McKinley, Gherkin, and Gottfried were winning the national championship in Athens, Georgia in 1972, we were a very, very close second. And in fact, if we had won our two semifinal matches with Tanner and uh, and Mayer versus uh Stockton and Gottfried, if we had won those two semifinal matches, we would have tied for the championship, which would have been been amazing. Uh, the next year we did win it. Uh, Roscoe Tanner had turned pro by then, his senior year. He did not come. He did graduate on time, but played uh, uh, two months of the year on the circuit, and so he was ineligible for uh, for college tennis. But uh, Sandy Mayer won the championship that year, and and then we won it again in '74, and we were on our way. Wow. Fantastic. <clears throat> Thank you so much for sharing all that. That um, really, really good stuff. Coach, we're heading up on a break here, but we have a call in from Texas. So we're going to take this caller, and then we'll go on break. Let's see who's on the air. Hello. Welcome to the show. Hey, this is Jaime Ramos. I'm calling from El Paso, Texas. Hi, Jaime. Do you have a question for Coach Gould? Yeah. Um, my goal is actually to play for Stanford Tennis uh, when I go to college. I just want to see what you what Stanford looks like. I mean, what Stanford looks into a player when they're recruiting a player, what, what it takes to get to Stanford. A good question. I'll answer that in general terms, Jaime. I don't want to talk to you personally about such just because of recruiting things, but I can tell you in general that uh, throughout your life you're going to be presented with many options, and you want to you want to earn as many options as you possibly can. So when you make your final choice on what you're going to do relative to a college. Uh, to a sport or whatever, or a job, whatever it might be, you have options to choose from. If you're thinking about a school like a Harvard or a Stanford or something like that academically, uh, my advice to any young child would be, any young person would be to do the best you can academically and take the most rigorous courses that you can. And that's the first thing to be considered at a school like a Harvard or Princeton or Stanford. Uh, I don't care how good a tennis player or a football player someone might be unless you've done the work in the classroom and proved that you could prove and you can do such, uh, then, then, you, then it's not a factor. So work hard in the classroom, take the challenging courses as many as you possibly can, and then continue to do well in your tennis. When I was coaching, it was a little different than it was now because everyone was playing in their age group. And I would go very highly on the national rankings. We only have four and a half students uh, in the latter half of my coaching who could be on scholarship at one time. So uh, I found that generally speaking of the top five high school senior players in the country, of those who are ranked in the top five who are high school seniors, uh, usually one of those was a realistic candidate for admission. In the second five, usually there would be one person to be qualified for admission. And on occasional years, a third player in the top ten of the high school seniors would be eligible or, or a possible a possible admit as well. My job then would be to attract them to Stanford if they were basically qualified. So good luck with the process, and most of all, if you want to have options like Stanford or like the Ivy League schools, be sure you do your best academically and take a rigorous course. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah, for that question. And, Coach, we're going to take a break. Uh, we'll be right back with Coach Dick Gould after this short break. Don't go anywhere. Hey, Thirst, can I try out a few Coke summer sound effects on you? Yeah. Cool. You okay with this? And this? And what about this? <sighs> gotcha there, Thirst. That wasn't sound effects. That was a Coke. I'm no longer thirsty. You're so out of here. Coca-Cola. Open happiness. What is this bill for $562? Let me call these people. 
Thanks for calling Big Tobacco. How can I be of assistance? Hi, I was going through my mail and saw this bill saying I owe $562 for smoking-related expenses. That's correct, ma'am. Yeah, what's the deal with this bill? You see, smokers miss more work and retire earlier, which costs Nevadans $903 million in lost productivity per year. Also, smokers get sick with diseases like lung cancer and emphysema, costing another $565 million in medical expenses. So, when you add it up and divide by a total number of Nevadans, it comes out to 560 per Nevada household. Okay, but I don't smoke. Well, whether you smoke or not, every Nevadan pays the bill. You know what? I'm not paying this bill. Actually, you already did. And you'll be making the same payment again next year. Well, thank you for your call. Hello? Is smoking worth it? Learn more at SmokeFreeVegas.com. That's SmokeFreeVegas.com. Or for free help quitting smoking, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. That's 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Made possible by funding from the Department of Health and Human Services. Little Caesars, home of the $5 hot and ready pepperoni pizza, now has a deep, deep dish pizza with eight crispy caramelized corner slices and even more cheese and pepperoni. So head on down and grab a large for just eight bucks and tell them Alan Varner sent you. They won't know who that is, but as a voice actor, I'm always trying to get my name out there. Check me out at alandoesvoices.com. That's A-L-A-N doesvoices.com. But first, get the new deep, deep dish pizza. It's hot and ready every day from 4 to 8 p.m. for just 8 bucks, only at Little Caesars. Pizza, pizza. At participating locations plus tax. To celebrate the not normal Mini Cooper, we hired an expert to tell you about Mini telepathically. Greetings. Relax and listen to my mind. The Mini Cooper hardtop comes with 37 MPG and co-cart handling. Wait, that's not telepathy. Listen again. The bigger four-door Mini Countryman has seating for five. Okay, you're just whispering. You're still paying me for this. Come see the 37 MPG Mini Cooper hardtop and the bigger Mini Countryman today. Visit miniusa.com slash info for MPG details. Hi, this is Dennis Ralston, and you're listening to the Pro 10 Radio Network. Catch me live on the Players' Lounge Thursday, May 22nd at 7 p.m. Pacific. Hello, Coach. Are you still there? I'm here. There okay, I'm go. not sure what no, happened back. to Alex. Uh, Alex, you back? Yes. Okay. Yes, that was a weird thing. Anyway, Coach, welcome back to the show. Uh, Coach, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, the NCAA title. Uh, can you expand a little bit on the NCAA title, the first one that you won, How that, what that felt like to actually finally win one? <laughs> well, a couple things. First of all, uh, Jaime, we just talked to, and uh, I should have mentioned my one of my first recruits, my first ever recruit, was from uh, El Paso. So that was an interesting story. And, and also, I was really, really, really pleased to hear you're going to have on uh, Dennis Ralston on Thursday. Uh, Dennis was a few years behind me in Southern California growing up, but uh, he's had his challenges. And I'll tell you, there's no better statements, states, statesman for tennis or representative around. And, and you're very, very fortunate to have on the show. That's going to be a great show. I can't wait to hear it. Okay, ask me again what we're going to talk about now. Your first NCAA title. Uh, you finally won one. Won one. What was that like? Well, it's interesting because the year before, I remember sitting at a just, uh, restaurant called Ireland's after the 1972 NCAA's when Roscoe Tanner, Tanner uh, lost in the semis after having been the finals each of the two years before that, and. Uh, it was really interesting because I was trying to talk Roscoe out of turning pro. The first, the only player I ever tried to talk out of turning pro because he was one who built the program up. And, and all of a sudden, with Roscoe coming back and Sandy Mayer coming back, uh, we were poised to win the thing. And I was crestfallen when Roscoe said, no, Coach, I, I just got to do this. So he left, and I didn't know that we would have a chance to do it. But we had a, a, a good base of young players by that time, and the tournament really uh, was turned on. Uh, Sandy Mayer won the tournament, but in singles and in doubles. But uh, really, other players stepped up. Uh, a fellow named Rick Fisher, uh, 
got to the semifinals that year. And and he was maybe a top 10 junior in the country, but not a great player, but a great competitor and great team player. And those were all, those were very, very important points. Remember, we're talking individual tournament in those days until 1977. So uh, the other players came through as well. Jimmy Delaney, who won the doubles with Sandy, uh, John Whitley. We just had great performances down the line. So I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I didn't care if we ever won it again. But the next year was even more of a challenge. Uh, uh, actually, a couple of things happened. Our top two players in the next year could not play in the tournament or didn't play in the tournament. Um, Sandy Mayer left the team just before the tournament uh, in, a, in a situation where we we had another player on the team who Sandy fell in love with his girlfriend, and it just became a really tough situation. And he just felt it was better if he, he left the team. And so he left the team at the time of our conference tournament. And at the same time, our number two player, Pat Dupre, wasn't able to play. Uh, he hurt his wrist and couldn't play. Uh, these were all in our last competitions of the year before the NCAA championship. So our top two players are out. But then uh, John Whitlinger, who was our number four player, reached the finals. And in the finals played our number six player. That was number six before Sandy and uh, had dropped out. And and and, uh, my, and Pat Dupre, the former Kalamazoo champion, uh, hurt his wrist and couldn't play. So we had my number. We had the fellows who were number four and number six on my team one month earlier, three weeks earlier, in the finals that year at the first year was held at USC, and uh, some other great performances by other players as well. So that to me was quite an extraordinary win, one I certainly didn't anticipate. Uh, we had a chance to win it in 1976, uh, finished one point behind SC and UCLA. We were co-champions. Uh, really disappointed in that because we had a good lead in that tournament. I thought we were on our way to winning it again. Uh, but then we came back the first year of the team championship and won it in 77 and then again in 78, and, and we were on our way. Wonderful. Congrats on that, Coach, uh, getting the first one under your belt. And, you know, in your years at Stanford, you coached 50 All-Americans all, all in all, and probably the name people across the world would most recognize uh, would be John McEnroe. Obviously, John had some success before going to Stanford, but uh, if you can elaborate on the recruiting process with John as well as what he was like with uh, with your squad in 1978. Surely, absolutely. Uh, John was probably the number two junior in the country. I think Larry Gottfried might have been, uh, uh, or Brian, I forget which one, might have been uh, ranked ahead of him in the country uh, most of the junior time. And, and yet, uh, and so it's hard because in those days, Stanford would not let you know that you, whether or not you're admitted till April 1st, and most other schools would do it earlier. Nowadays, it's even earlier, uh, including for Stanford, that they'll let you know whether or not you're going to be admitted. But uh, John had to wait till April 1st to know, and uh, uh, he, I think, was pretty well set on coming to Stanford. I, I did not make a home visit in John's case. Uh, I did that when I felt it was necessary uh, to convince someone to come here and to get to know the parents a little better. But John was pretty interested in Stanford and, and made the commitment that, provided he was admitted, he was going to come uh, pretty early on. However, in those days, Bill Reardon had a really great circuit for players in the Middle States area and Eastern area. And John started playing those his last year in high school in the spring and did very, very well. Had some wins over uh, several top ten Americans and and top uh, pretty highly ranked uh, international players as well. And then he went to Wimbledon representing the junior team of the United States. And since the juniors' uh, championships didn't start until the second week, he had a wild card into the main draw qualifying. And so he played that and qualified for the tournament and then couldn't play the juniors. So he kept on winning the main draw and got to the semifinals. And I figured he was gone. He'd be turning pro and I wouldn't see him. Uh, when uh, he called me from the airport, in those days you could pick the kids up from the airport and transport them to school. He called me the airport in September and said, Coach, I'm here. Uh, can you pick me up? I said, John, uh, I gave your scholarship away. I thought you'd turn pro. A little silence on the phone, then we both started laughing. Uh, actually, he had played so much that spring and that summer. Uh, he played every tournament that summer, had a great summer throughout. I think he got to the quarters, maybe the U.S. Open. Uh, played everything in between Wimbledon there, plus this heavy spring schedule that I gave him the fall off. 
And I told him, John, and I'd never done this with another player, nor had I done it, nor did I do it since. I said, John, you played so much. I want you fresh in the spring. Why don't you get used to school, take the fall off, and I'll see you in January. And so his first experience on the team competitively really was in January. And and I quickly found out our first competition was the National Team Indoor Championship in Madison, Wisconsin in those days. And and, uh, so I had to set a lineup up. And I had the defending national champion, Matt Mitchell, a great player, uh, returning uh, to that team. I had another fellow from uh, Northern California with Matt, who was a year older than Matt, I believe, who was a great player, won Kalamazoo in the 16s, Bill Mays, and uh, John. And I said, you know, guys, uh, John uh, got the semis of Wimbledon, but in good faith, I can't just automatically put him ahead of you guys. Uh, So I'm going to have you three play. And see for the what to determine our lineup for the indoors. Well, usually what happens when you do something like that, everyone wins up with one win and one loss against each other, and it's a one 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 and one one. So you're right back where you started. In this situation, John won both matches in three good sets against each of those two players. Uh, Matt Mitch, uh, Bill Mays beat Matt Mitchell in a very 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 close three set match and played number two, and Matt started the season at number three or number four, the defending NCAA champion. Uh, But in that team tournament, uh, Mac, if John finished his match first, he would be the first guy on the court to congratulate a guy who won or to console a guy who lost. And I'm thinking to myself, hey, this guy is really special. He really cares about the team part of this competition. And that certainly was borne out in later years. I don't think he ever passed up a request to serve on the Davis Cup team and to play for the United States, as an example. Uh, He was probably one of the very best team players I've ever had. Uh, very proud and 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 very much aware of what he himself was doing, but a great awareness of those around him, and to this day is still very good friends with everyone on that team. That is great. Thank you so much for that insight, Coach. Coach, I read somewhere that uh, your philosophy was focused around a certain volley game. Can you tell us a little bit about your philosophy in the years that you coached at Stanford? Well, as a player, I grew up as a certain volleyer, and and I, I I just have the mentality that I want I want the player to I want the opponent to react to me, rather than me to react to the opponent. So the quicker I can put pressure on the opponent, whether it be off a return, off a second serve by coming in on it, or getting in as quickly as I can off the ground, or serving and volleying on both first and second serves. Uh, I want to do that because that puts the pressure on the opponent. And this was my style of play. I, I really wanted my players to take a chance to make something happen, win or lose the point. I wanted them to be the, the instigator of the action, so to speak. And that was my credo. And, uh, in fact, everyone who won the NCAAs while, while playing for Stanford University, up until Bob Bryan was basically a serving volley player. And uh, and whether they were when they came into Stanford or not, I think even John McEnroe preferred the backcourt. Uh, the two pure serving volley players I had who entered Stanford as such were Sandy Mayer and a fellow who played numerous Davis Cups and became number one in the world a couple, three different years, I believe, Jim Grab. And they were the only two pure serving volley players I had entering Stanford. But remember, these guys were just physically growing, and in those days, most everyone had a pretty good net game because that was the way of the day. And so it was my job to be sure that they were in practice every day, uh, practicing this and and gaining confidence in what they actually could do and accomplish at the net. And that was my style, and that was my credo, and that probably what I was was mostly known for. Yeah, thank you so much. Nice, nice, Coach. Thanks, and. uh, Last question before break. Uh, you were the author of a, a very popular uh, tennis instructional book called Tennis Anyone. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how that came to be? <laughs> when I was at Foothill College, I was teaching tennis as a PE class, and I wanted a syllabus for my classes. Uh, my partner, Tom Shivington, who succeeded me at Foothill College, uh, and I ran a community program for uh, about 25 communities in the area, tra- hiring and training the instructors uh, a good many people who are still in tennis out there today and even college coaches uh, learned their teaching. The first teaching was in that program. Uh, so this became a syllabus for them as well. Uh, it was in our Foothill College bookstore. The publisher, a book publisher came by, saw it there being sold as a class syllabus and wanted to actually publish it. 
I had sent it to Brown and Saunders and some of the big publishing councils, and they all sent it back, so then they already had a tennis how to do it book. But this was an educational publisher, and and they took it on and did it, and and uh, six editions later, and about and well, well over 500,000 copies sold. It finally uh, became out of out of style and out of print as a certain volley game uh, diminished. But it was a it was a really great simple primer and a great resource for someone who was a PE major and maybe a football or basketball coach, but was assigned to coach tennis. And it was a great primer for someone working with groups of tennis. And, and uh, it, it, I was very pleased with and gratified by the response to that book. It was printed nice, in, nice. in Japanese. It was printed in French. Uh, it was at, it was in the tennis boom. It was on uh, airport bookstands and so on. So it had a pretty good life. Nice. No, we we appreciate that insight, Coach, and, and everyone's better off as a result of that being uh, available. And we're going to talk more with Coach Dick Gould when we come back after this break. Hi, this is Jeff Salzenstein, former top 100 ATP singles and doubles player, two-time Stanford All-American, and high-performance coach. You're about to discover how to dramatically improve your tennis fitness level so that you can play your best tennis ever. You see, this program is a 12-week guide where you'll be taken by the hand and shown exactly how to get super strong and mobile so that you can easily feel more stable, prevent injuries, move more efficiently on the court, have more endurance, and add more effortless power to your game. I want you to know that just like all of my other courses, you'll get a full 100% money-back guarantee on strength and mobility for tennis if you're not completely satisfied. I'll give you a full year to keep the program and if you're not completely satisfied, I'm going to refund every penny. Go to jeffsaldensteintennis.com to take your tennis to the next level. Their advertisements make it seem like they love animals. But in reality, they tortured animals for decades. They tested cigarettes on monkeys, rabbits, and dogs. In one study, they strapped dogs down and cut their throats open to permanently install a tube that forced the dogs to smoke cigarettes. This filled their bodies with tar that caused some of the dogs to develop cancer, bronchitis, and pulmonary emphysema. But it gets worse. In the late 60s, they were running smoking experiments with rabbits and mice where the animals were developing emphysema. Hundreds of rabbits and mice died. Any normal company would have had a massive recall. But what did they do? They fired the scientists, buried the findings, and shut down the study. Then they continued to deny smoking caused any health problems for decades. So you want to know why I'm smoke-free? Because I'm not okay with hurting dogs to test tobacco products. That's why. Learn more at whydoyouthink.com. That's the letter Y, do you think, dot com. Northern Tool and Equipment. My girlfriend has given me a pet name. I'm afraid to ask. Snuggle Muffin. No, it isn't. And she uses it in public. Okay, so give your girlfriend a pet name she'll hate, like uh, Thunder Chunky. I couldn't do that. I see. Too harsh for Snuggle Muffin. Okay. Drown her out with a 200-mile-per-hour cordless leaf blower. Got it. Here she comes. Hey, Snuggle Muffin. <laughs> what are you doing, Snuggle Snuggle. I am so out of here. Wait. Come back, Thunder Chunky. There's no problem a little horsepower can't solve. Northern Tool and Equipment. Hi, this is Rick Macy, and you're listening to the Pro 10 Radio Network. Catch me live on the Coach's Corner, Friday, May 23rd, at 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Back on the Coach's Corner, presented by Pro 10 Global Sports and Coach International. We're talking with legendary coach Dick Gould. Reminding you, you can call the show at area code 347-637-1197. Coach, our last segment here, gearing up to the end of the show here. Uh, coach, generally speaking, let's see, where are we here? Uh, when a collegiate player is considering leaving college early to join the pro circuit, what has been the predominant uh, factor determining the decision? 
Well, let me let me backtrack one minute. That's a great question, and I want to be sure and answer that as best I can. Uh, I just heard a nice uh, plug for uh, by Jeff Salzenstein on your program, and I, I think this brings to mind that one of the reasons I've been so blessed and enjoyed what I've done so much are the young people that I've been able to work with, and and any coach is only as good as the players that he has, and and of course you have to improve and do well in college, enjoy their experience, and do well after college, but. Uh, I'm very proud of the fact that Jeff and so many people have stayed in tennis. You've had great guests in Jeff Tarango and and Tim Mayot, David Wheaton. What tremendous players these were, and what tremendous how how much I enjoyed having them in my program. You look at uh, Nick Saviano, Martin Blackman, Patrick McEnroe, Matt Mitchell. I could go on and on and on with all these guys. John Whitlinger, our coach right now. Uh, Billy Mays, a coach at UC Davis. Uh, these these guys have meant so much to me, and I really am so proud of the fact they've continued tennis or giving back in their own way now. Uh, pro or not, that's a great question, and I don't think you really know for sure uh, whether someone is ready or not uh, to turn pro. Uh, you always might want to hold on and say, well, let's work for six more months on this before you make that big step. The thing that we're really lucky in tennis to have is the fact that you can play as an amateur in pro events and get a pro ranking. Not every sport can you do that in. So that gives you a chance to play some pro events in the summer, get your pro holidays, get your pro ranking, and so on. But I think that as the age of the top players or the top 100 players has increased uh, maybe by an average of two years, because the game is so physical now in terms of strength and 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 uh, and, and 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 training that that it's more difficult for a player to turn pro a little bit early. Uh, I think we're seeing only in the last couple of weeks, most of the spring, the top three ranking Americans in the ATP Tour all had three years, four years of college behind them. Uh, John Isner, of course, at Georgia, Bradley Klon at Stanford, and Steve Johnson at USC. And they really benefited from this, whereas a lot of the players who went out uh, in their classes have not uh, are ranked behind them, have not, uh, have not stayed at that level or achieved that level. So there's a lot of merit right now as players are maturing later in their games and physically uh, to stay in tennis longer. I think the UST has, rec- has recognized that and, and in fact, is encouraging all but that once-in-a-lifetime gem who comes along, the Agassi or someone like that, uh, to stay in school for a while. When do you make that decision? Uh, the coach can't make that for you so much. I think the player's got to feel it. If he feels he's so anxious to get out there uh, and and do it, he's not going to be much good for the college team. But I think more and more players are taking that on the bubble or taking the next year and staying in college. And I must say that I think it's very rare that that does not help them in their development. Thank you for that uh, insight, Coach. And, indeed, the spotlight is on uh, on college tennis quite a bit, like you mentioned, uh, John Bradley and, and Steve Johnson all playing four years. Uh, nice nice to see them having success on the APT, ATP Tour. Well, speak, and, uh, speaking of college tennis, I, I have to give a shout-out. I, I Sorry I didn't get back to this this, this year, but uh, w- one of my former players, Alex Kim, is being inducted into the Intercollegiate Hall of Fame tonight in Athens, Georgia. I wish I were there to, to be with him. John Whitlinger will be, be introducing him. But congratulations to Peter Smith and those USC Trojans having won five of the last six NCAA championships. They've done a great job at, at down in the Southland, and, and Peter and all Trojans that might be listening ought to be very, very proud of what they've accomplished. It certainly is not common. And uh, the UCLA women's team keeping it in the Pac-12 for yet another title, which is nice. Well, to Stella, see. And, Stella uh, and Rance, Stella and Rance, Stella Sampras and Rance—they they just do a great job with their players, and and uh, it, it's very competitive out there. There's a lot of good teams, and a lot of these matches could have gone either way. Look at what John Roddick has done at uh, Oklahoma, as an example, coming out of nowhere. North Carolina has really come up along in the women's tennis. So it was a great year for college tennis, and and the more and more parity, it becomes more and more exciting to watch. Indeed, and uh, Craig O'Shaughnessy, coach uh, of the New York Times and also uh, writes for the ATP, WTA websites, as well as Tennis Magazine, he's uh, hosted on the show a few times, and he recently stated a couple weeks ago saying that the round of 16 at the NCAA tournament is one of the top five days of tennis on the calendar, and um, you highlighted a little bit on some of the national champions here, but if you can talk about the caliber of play at the NCAA tennis tournament and possibly what the casual tennis fan might be missing if they're not even aware of the event. 
Well, our biggest ambassador really is Wayne Bryan. He he saw college tennis firsthand as a player at Santa Barbara, but also at Cal Santa Barbara, but also through his sons in their two years at Stanford. And uh, it just he's he's such a big booster of it. If you want to get your kid involved in tennis, the best thing you can do is have him go out and watch a good college match, uh, two evenly matched teams. It's it's just tremendously exciting. We were fortunate enough to host the NCAA championship here in 2006 and again in 2011. And when we submitted our bid in 2006, we submitted as a bid where both women and men would play at the same site. It took a year for that to get through the uh, bureaucracy and rigmarole and for people to say, well, let's give it a try. But I think doing that has really added a lot because you see the men and women, the top men's and women's teams at the same site. You see great matches and right on, the round of 16 on, is just an incredible event. And the ebbs and flows in a three to four hour match in tennis are just extremely exciting and exhausting. And uh, it's just it's just such a great environment uh, to be in. They do a great job at Georgia. We did a great job at Stanford. There are great venues coming up for this. Uh, it should never be missed. It's it's one of the truly great things to watch in tennis and certainly I think one of the great amateur events in the world in any sport. Um, I, I, I am worried about something in college tennis, however. The, the lawsuit with the Northwestern football players, uh, mm-hmm. some of the words from the UCLA basketball player coming out, uh, the NCAA is being pro- proactive on this uh, unionization type thing. They're trying to diffuse this a little bit by, by giving more uh, allowances toward uh, scholarship athletes in terms of help with food and so on. Uh, I, I would like to remind everybody that uh, we've lost about 10 college programs, most of them men's tennis, in the last month. And these kinds of things that are going to happen especially with the top five conferences throughout the country, uh, are going to cost money. And it may be one to two to $4,000 an athlete. And that means these, and since only about 20 of these schools are making money now, in spite of the TV revenue, this means that there's going to be a lot more pressure uh, on the schools to cut sports. And I think this is a very, very bad omen for college tennis. And I think it's something that, uh, although the concept may not be bad, uh, we have to realize it's we, we as coaches better do all we can to make our program as self-sufficient as possible or we're not going to be around. I, I think we've really worked hard over the years to do that at Stanford, but I hope we all take that to heart and, and be sure we're going to be responsible for our own existence. Absolutely, Coach. You know, we lost the program here at ASU a few years back, and uh, it was hard to take for a while for a lot of the, the fans locally to, to not be able to see men's tennis here anymore. So I'm hoping that, well, both uh, Kansas and Arizona State, when their programs went down, they were both ranked in the top 15 in the country. Uh, Kansas State, Kansas, a couple of years before Arizona State, and that's a tremendous loss. But, but you're seeing more and more of that, and you're going to see a lot more of that uh, if they start giving athletes more money uh, allotments for scholarships. Right, right. Uh, thank you for sharing that, Coach. Coach, in, in your initial years as head coach uh, at Stanford. Uh, can you kind of elaborate on some of the accomplishments and achievements early on that allowed you to build the program into a perennial national championship contender? Well, I, I think that I, I, I think that we recruited a, a strong base of players. Uh, as the base got stronger, then everyone got better themselves amongst themselves, and then we gradually started uh, attracting the, the star players. And, uh, of course, that was the key. A coach doesn't win anything without the players. But I think the thing that allowed us to sustain it, which I think was more remarkable than than achieving it, uh, I think for 35 years, everyone who attended Stanford for four years has at least one championship ring. And I'm really very, very, very proud of that. And uh, I think for that to happen, number one, the player has to enjoy the experience at the school he or she goes to. Number two, has to improve while in college and feel that he or she has improved. And number three, if he or she is going to play beyond college, has to have success there as well. And if those things are achieved, then it's possible to stay at the top for some time. Perfect. Uh, thank you for that insight, Coach. And uh, just a quick question of, uh, with respect to the pro game. If you uh, personally were able to make any changes to the ATP or WTA game with respect to the current rules as they stand, what would you, uh, what would you do? And if so, what would they be and why? Well, number one, I think this. I I I don't know. I don't know now is best of eighteen or best of fourteen. But basically, what happens is 
at least with the ATP, uh, you you have to take 18 results each year, say, or 16 or 15, whatever it is now, and you have to count those results. And you can throw away all your other bad results so they don't get averaged into your ranking. It used to be every match you played counted in terms of your ATP ranking. And so you could take a player like a, a Jeff Tarango or a Danny Goldie uh, uh, who were at Stanford and who got ranked in the top 100 in only one summer of play because the better players weren't protected by throwing out their bad results. And those rankings lasted for a year so they could come back to Stanford, get another year of education, and go be quali- and qualify to ma- for the main draw of Wimbledon automatically. So it was a great thing. But as they started enacting this best of 18, I think now it's best of 16 rule, then uh, the players are protected, and it takes a year and a half to break up to that rank, break into that ranking level of ranking. Whereas it used to be, you could do it in the summer. I think that's one thing I would change because it, it doesn't help the young players develop. I think just in terms of style of play, I think that someday there's going to be a guy come along who's <laughs> taught to serve in volley, and who has a big serve, and I think we'll see that become. Uh, uh, a more integral part of the game once again. I don't think that necessarily has died. I just think the players are afraid to to bet on that growing up. Yeah, it's not really taught that Thanks. much these days anymore. Everybody is just grinding it from the baseline. Uh, thank you so much for that insight, Coach. And last question as we're coming up to the end of the show. Coach, can you uh, give a few tips to the juniors on how to best, when they're out there getting trying to get recruited, how to best get in touch with a coach and stand out because the coaches get so many emails and videos uh, so they get noticed and, and have a chance to uh, to go to college. Well, it's a little tougher than it is now because not because so many players are playing out of their age group. Uh, many of them are playing ITF tournaments rather than junior tournaments. It used to be everyone played all the major U.S. junior tournaments, and they're all in the same age group, and they had very – uh, very definite rankings to go by, and I recruited solely on the rankings. And I missed some kids who came up late, but if I was going to spend fifty thousand dollars on a scholarship each year for a kid, I wanted to be sure that he had he was a proven winner, not not that he had potential. So I would go very heavy on the rankings. Uh, I think it's really important to have rel- uh, re- uh, results against your peers who are being considered for college. No matter uh, a video can make anybody look good make anyone look pretty. I think uh, I, I, I don't care if it was an ugly player in terms of what his, his game looked like. If the guy could win, he could win. And I could I could coach him around the rest with a style of play that I could teach him the style of play I wanted him to, to use. So I don't, I never placed much uh, value in videos. I wanted to see results, and I wanted to see the results against players that would be entering college that year that that player was entering college. So, uh Work hard to get those results against players of your ability level. Uh, don't avoid players. Don't don't avoid tournaments. Uh, also, don't forget to study and work hard in your school because really you're going to college not to play tennis. You're going to college to to better yourself individually when you get out of college to learn more about life and about people and make contacts and to learn subject matter and. The good thing about our system in the United States, you also can play your sport. Your sport, not, you might not be able to play forever, at least at the highest level. So uh, keep in mind you're going for college more more than just tennis. Great anti-coaching, great advice for everybody out there. Uh, Coach, thank you so much for, for joining us for this past hour on the show. I know you have a busy schedule. We want to wish you safe travels uh, to the French Open this year. Enjoy your time out there. Uh, looking forward to that and seeing uh, a lot of my guys are broadcasting. Of course, the Twins and Scott Lipsky are still playing. So looking forward to seeing them, Peter and Alex. And what a pleasure to be with you guys. Keep up the great work and uh, hope to talk to you again. Thank you, Coach. Coach. Have a good time. That was Coach Dick Gould joining us on the show. I want to remind everybody that tomorrow coming up, we have Dennis Ralston, uh, followed by Rick Macy on Friday. Uh, Next week, we kick off the show with Bobby Blair, author of Hiding Inside the Baseline. In the same show, we'll be talking to Jan Ozu from FitSet.com. And in the second part of our doubleheader, you will hear Passing Shots with B.C. Braun, and his guest host will be Jan Ozu. The CEO and Executive Director of the USPTA, John Embry, will join us Wednesday afternoon, and Dr. Ann Smith will close out the week on Thursday night. That has This has been another edition of the Coach's Corner on the Pro 10 Radio Network. 
For Coach Dick Gould and Pete Zebron, this is Alex Ramirez signing off. Have a great afternoon, and God bless.